0: Our theme for both services today is the masks of unbelief. In the passage before us, we hear Jesus once again put his finger on the fundamental problem of the human condition. He has done it already multiple times throughout his ministry, multiple times throughout John's gospel. He said to the Jewish leaders in chapter 5, verse 40, You refuse to come to me that you may have life. Last week in chapter 6, we saw how he said to the crowd, You have seen me, and yet you do not believe. Our fundamental problem is unbelief. And before we can come to faith, and for us to actually grow in grace, even we after we have come to saving faith, Jesus must unmask our unbelief. And at this point, we are alerted to a truth that we might find dis- surprising, maybe even disturbing. And that is, if we read the Gospels carefully, and if you read into the book of Acts, It is right to say that Jesus brings out and magnifies the unbelief of the human heart. Yes, he grants saving faith, but it's also right to say that Jesus brings out and magnifies the unbelief of the human heart. You see, our unbelief, which often Lurks beneath the surface in the deep recesses of our hearts when confronted with Jesus and his claims will bubble up to the surface. And that's what chapter 7 is about. We are only about a third of the way through the Gospel of John, and already there is a plot to kill Jesus. Why? Because Jesus is bringing out and magnifying the unbelief of these people. He's unmasking their unbelief. And what is interesting about this chapter is that we have three groups of people in this chapter. There's Jesus' brothers There's this crowd who sort of whispers about him, and then there's the religious leaders. Now, on the surface, they all seem to look uh, very different. And yet, John, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, puts them into one category. They are shown how they are alike in their unbelief. And what we are being taught is that our unbelief can wear different guises. It can masquerade as many different things, but underneath it is all unbelief. And if we think about it, this is really the first thing we are confronted with in the gospel. Because we are never going to embrace the Lord's Jesus Christ until we first have our sin exposed and realize that by nature we are all unbelievers. And even once we come to believe upon Jesus, we know that our faith is not expressed perfectly in this world. We know that we have unbelief that lurks. In our heart, and therefore, Jesus must unmask that so we can grow, so we can come to trust Him more. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way He said, We can only be brought to genuine faith in Jesus Christ when we have come to understand that by nature we are all unbelievers. And even after we are saved by His grace, this side of heaven, unbelief still lurks in the recesses of our hearts. By nature, we do not trust in Jesus Christ. By nature, the gospel does not make sense to us. And that is why Jesus confronts our unbelief so that it emerges from below the surface. And we need to remember that he does this not to be cruel, but he does this with an end in view. That we might see our need for him and embrace him and trust him as our Savior and Lord and come to experience the joy that he desires for us in a relationship with him. Jesus exposes the deep seated unbelief. Of the human heart. And in chapter 7, he does this at the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. And this is significant. During the Feast of Tabernacles or Booths, uh, faithful Israelites would camp out, basically. They would live in tents for a week to commemorate their time in the wilderness. When they lived in tents and God sustained them for forty years, Uh, this was the most popular of the feast. It was a fun time. It was a camping festival. But what is often forgotten, and clearly what these people had forgotten, what there it was a dark side to the Feast of Tabernacles. As much as it was a remembrance of God's faithfulness to them and how he tabernacled among them, it was as much a reminder of their unbelief, of their rebellion, of their refusal to listen to him. How To use the language of Zechariah 7, how they made their hearts diamond hard against the Lord. So striking was that unbelief that only two people, two people out of that wilderness generation, out of over a million, only two of them entered the promised land. And as the writer to the Hebrews says, they did not enter because of unbelief. And so we could think about it this way, that similar to the Lord's Supper, that The Feast of Tabernacles was a great celebration. It was a reminder of God's faithfulness, but it had this mechanism for self-examination built in. A call to remembrance the faithlessness of their fathers. And so it's fitting that Jesus chooses this occasion to unmask their unbelief, to show them that they too were unbelievers, and unless they embraced him, they also would fail to enter the promised rest. And as we will, in coming weeks, see, Jesus is showing himself to be the fulfillment of this feast. Um, John weaves in themes that he uh, mentions in his introduction. He said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, Uh, Literally, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. I forget what that's called. I'm not going to make Mary proud. What's, or Darla. Uh, I can't remember the music term, but John is weaving these motifs into his gospel. And he unmasks this these unbelief of these different groups, and it gives us insight into the guises that our unbelief can wear. And what we'll do is this morning, we'll think about the first two groups, Jesus Brothers, and the crowd that, that whispers or mutters, and then we'll come back in the second service and think about the religious leaders that, in the end, wear the most sophisticated and dangerous mask of man-made religion. Let's first think about how Jesus unmasks his brother's unbelief, and we see that they hide behind the mask of what we could call a fleshly perspective. A fleshly perspective. John tells us it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles, and we read in verses 3 to 5, his brother said to him, leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may also see the works that you are doing, for no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. And John adds his commentary. For not even his brothers believed in him. Now, what's behind this here? We, you know, those of us who have siblings, we can, we can hear that that sibling kind of relationship here. Why are his brothers urging him to go to Jerusalem and to show himself to the world if, as John says, they didn't believe in him? Well, they had noticed, and they might have been embarrassed by the fact, that his popularity had waned. You remember chapter 6 ended with a mass desertion. You can almost hear the conversations within the house. Like his brother saying to him, you had this huge following. And you had to go say dumb and offensive things. And now you have no more followers. Go and show yourself again. Take your ministry to the big city. but it's clear his brothers were thinking from a fleshly worldly perspective they can't understand why jesus wouldn't do what they would do they said go again if you, there's hundreds of thousands of people at the feast of tabernacles go do some miracles you'll get a huge following again but jesus was not interested in gaining fans he would eventually go to jerusalem and he would eventually show himself but he would go on his father's terms in his father's time and the way he would ultimately show himself would be on the cross he would go not to gain fans but to reconcile sinners to himself by his sacrificial death you see although his brothers thought that they knew him they were looking at Jesus from what Paul calls a fleshly perspective Paul says in Second Corinthians five sixteen, we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, but we regard him thus no longer. This, friends, is a mark of unbelief. Looking at Christ and thinking that he should do what we would do in a given situation. Thinking that we know how he should operate. Jesus goes on to unmask this unbelief in verses 6 to 8. He said to them, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I am not going up to this feast, for my time has not yet fully come. And he remained in Galilee. What Jesus means here is that his time lies in the Father's hands; that his time has not yet come. Now you'll notice it, it was likely just a day or two later that he so he went up anyway. But so sensitive is Jesus to his Father's will and his Father's time that he waits. He knows that he needed to wait. And he says, any time's right for you because you have no sense of God's timing and God's will and God's purpose for your life. You see, that's a fundamental difference between Jesus and his followers and everybody else. For the unbeliever, all times are right because there's no sense of God's timing and God's plan and God's will. Unbelief says my life is mine. My time is mine. My plans are mine. There's no sense of the kingly authority of the triune god well, on the other hand the believer along with their master pray your will be done the world says my will be done this is a characteristic of unbelief and that's why jesus says that the world can't hate you because you belong to the world. You order your life just like the world. The world will hate us because we keep different time. We acknowledge a sovereign God to whom we belong. And yet, friends, is it not true that this same mask of unbelief can subtly lurk within us? We make plans; it's good to make plans. but how easily do we come to look at those plans and our timing as our own? How often we can live without giving? Uh, much thought to God's timing and God's plan and God's will for us in a particular situation, you see, like his brothers, we can start start thinking that Jesus should do things the way that we would do them in this situation when we have trials and difficulties, we can become. Bitter because things aren't being done on our timetable, and those things can often reveal that we are looking at Jesus from this fleshly, worldly perspective. Friends, are we absorbed in this world? Have we lost? The sense of God's will and God's timing and God's plan. Friends, we are told that believers in Jesus walk by faith and not by sight. Are we walking by sight and not by faith today? See, his brothers showed themselves to belong to the world because they walked by sight and not by faith. we're told that Jesus eventually went up to that feast, uh, not publicly as his brothers wanted. And so Jesus was sensitive to his father's time, but also his father's means. His father would have him go up privately. And you can get the sense here how Jerusalem is buzzing with conversation about Jesus. Where is he? When is he coming? And this all goes back to chapter 5. A few months earlier, he had healed that man on the Sabbath, that man at the pool of Bethesda. And we read that it was from then on that they were, the, the religious leaders were seeking to kill him. The hot topic of conversation was that healing that Jesus had performed. And we see in this crowd, now we see the mask of private speculation. Private speculation about Jesus. Look at verses 12 and 13. And there was much muttering about him among the people. While some said he is a good man, others said, no, he is leading the people astray. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Now here are people who had they had the same evidence, and yet they come to two different conclusions: some say well he's a good man, others think he's a deceiver. But what's striking about these two groups of people? those who say he's a good man, those who say he's a deceiver, Though on the surface we might say, well, they're very different, the Holy Spirit sees them as belonging to one in the same category of unbelievers. Now, it's clear from verse 13 that the Jews, meaning the Jewish leaders, were forbidding anyone to talk about Jesus. They don't want his his ministry spreading again. That's what's behind verse 13. and the common people didn't know. They didn't know where the religious leaders stood. Were they they for Jesus? Were were they against Jesus? Uh, They say, can it be the authorities really know that this is the Christ? They don't know if the leaders are for or against Jesus Christ. And so both of these people, in the end, They're afraid of being persecuted. They have a fear of man. But the Holy Spirit sees them as one in the same. Because they never confess Jesus publicly. It's not hard to imagine this scene. These people who say, Jesus is a deceiver... Are they just parroting something that they heard from other people? Are they parroting what they think the religious leaders believe so so that they don't get themselves into trouble? And even those who spoke well of Jesus were in the end ashamed of Jesus. Friends, I think we need to be mindful of this in our evangelism that not everyone who says jesus is a good man is a christian we we're surrounded by people in our country i've lost track of how many conversations i've had like this where you talk to someone and they say yes i'm a christian i believe jesus is a good man but you know i keep my i keep my faith to myself and i don't want to make waves and if you want to believe this that's fine That's the mask of private speculation. A private faith that never becomes an open faith is not true faith. We need to ask ourselves, is our faith an open faith? Or is it nothing more than Whispering behind the scenes about Jesus. And I know many of you here have, you've made a public profession of faith. Have you continued on that path? Is your faith open? Because we would have to admit at times we're ashamed of Jesus. We we whisper about him instead of speaking unashamedly about him. And Jesus says, this is a mark of unbelief. And he unmasks that unbelief, exposes our unfaithfulness. Again, not to be cruel, but because he wants what is best for us. If you're an unbeliever this morning if you have not come to trust in Jesus Christ Jesus says to you directly you are an unbeliever not to be cruel but because he wants you to believe he wants you to come to him that you might have life and for those who who already are believers we know we know that we're plagued with a lack of faith toward Jesus. And for there to be growth and grace, for there to be greater faith, a deeper relationship with Jesus, we need to let Jesus pull off the masks of our unbelief. You see, he exposes our unbelief But he doesn't leave us there. He invites us to come to him for mercy, for grace, for greater faith. He wants us to ask for forgiveness and he will gladly pardon us for our faithlessness. At the center of this chapter, and we'll get to this in a couple weeks, remember he's exposing unbelief, but The centerpiece of this chapter is this glorious call when we read on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. You see, he exposes our our faithlessness, but he wants us to come to him and say, Lord, I, if you're not a believer, say, Lord, I, I have not believed. If you are a believer, you say, Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. You see, the same Jesus who unmasks our unbelief is the same Jesus who says, I am willing to pardon you and forgive you and restore you and strengthen your faith. Friends, Jesus shed his blood and died for our faithlessness. And although our faith will never be expressed perfectly in this life, our hope hope is that our Savior is always faithful, even to those like us who often show ourselves to be faithless. Let's bring our unbelief to him and confess our sin of disbelieving him. Cast yourself before him and he will give you forgiveness and mercy and he will strengthen your faith. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we We know that our sin is rooted in unbelief. And so we ask, O God, that you might cleanse us. Forgive us. Forgive us, Lord, for so often looking at you from a fleshly perspective, so often ordering our lives like the world orders their lives. Lord, we pray that we would walk by faith and not by sight. And we pray, Lord, that you would. Make our faith an open faith that we would desire that others see the glory of Jesus our Savior. Strengthen our faith, Lord, that you might have the glory. We pray in the good name of Jesus. Amen.